Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. Lisa Anderson here with you. And uh, happy February to you, first of all, as we get started this month. But later on for our inbox, we have a listener on the verge of getting engaged, but her boyfriend is pretty adamant that they have separate bank accounts when they get married, among some other things as well. And she's wondering, is this a reason to be concerned? Is doing so even biblical? One of our counselors is going to weigh in. And then for our culture segment, our friend Dr. Mike Bechtel is here to discuss a book he has written on overcoming people-pleasing. Is that possible if you're a people-pleaser? So it might be something you've struggled with. You're going to want to tune in uh, to this. This is going to be part one of our conversation. So this time around, we're going to address some common fears that people-pleasers have. Well, here we are for our roundtable. And we always think, you know, as we head into a new year, what are some good topics to address? What would be great for people to know? And I think especially coming off of 2020 and now 2021, lots of things going on, lots of change, transition, whatever. So we want to talk about resting well. And I know this is something people don't think you have to put a lot of intention or a lot of effort into resting, but you actually do. Uh, Most people are burning the candle at both ends. Most people are way overcommitted. Uh, You know, we've talked about here on The Boundless Show how millennials and Gen Z are really incredibly burnt out. In fact, generations being the burnout generations themselves. So fortunately, we have got uh, Diane, Jeremy and Jackson here. And we're going to talk about rest. Hey, everyone. Hi. Okay, well, this will be good. um, Because I feel like I was kind of telling you guys on the front end that I'm coming through a season of sickness. And I don't consider myself a bad rester, actually, Um, but I felt like being sick now through Christmas and New Year's, which was super lame, forced me to rest and forced me to kind of look at the new year with like, okay, how am I going to approach this? And so let's just talk about, you know, you as a rester, would you, (laughs) maybe I won't have everyone give themselves a grade as a rester, but if you want to, you can. But what does it look like for you when you're thinking of rest? What's the ideal scenario for you to regain rest and and kind of recharge? Well, I do really well alone. And that's been the case since I was super young. Like my parents had this idea of room time and that was mostly for them to rest, but also for us to rest. And even now as um, newly married, I found that I need to communicate better with my wife about when I need rest and what that looks like. For me, it could be something as simple as reading a book, um, taking some time to journal, or go on a run, something that might not sound super restful to a lot of people, but it is to me. Um, I've also found that sleep is one of those things that I can tend to overlook, um, but it literally does provide rest. That's one of those things that, along with nutrition, that I I just find really, really re-energizes me. Yeah, that's good. Okay, Jeremy, how about you? Yeah, you said intentionality um, earlier, and I had to learn this. I'm, I'll say, I'm in my mid-40s, right? I had to learn this in my 30s and have been practicing at this rhythm of life for 10 or 15 years because I hit a wall because I I didn't know how to do self-care and rest well as a going young dad and professional working in the counseling field. And I had to learn it. And intentionality, my wife and I even got some mentoring around that time period when really the kind of the wheels came off of some anxiety that was really heavy on me in uh, in my early to mid-30s. And uh, now we have a rhythm, a family rhythm that kind of came out of some of the mentoring and coaching we got 
where we put things on our calendar. Hmm. We have a me, we, us rhythm in our week. Me being some me time for both my wife and I, we time in couple time, and then us being all, I have a family of five, all of us. So every week penciled on this little uh, whiteboard calendar is me, we, us. And if we need to move it around because of the kids' baseball schedule or other things, we move it around, but we have placeholders that visually show us where are you doing the me, the we, and the us every week. And I can talk more about that as we go. Cool. Okay, great. Diane? And I found that to be true because I say yes to everything. And so learning that if I say yes to this, it means no. And if I say no, that means yes to something else. So I also have a calendar because I will overschedule myself before I even realize that I've done that. And so for me, resting would be baking. It's like reading a book. It's playing on the floor with my with my grandkids. It's like those things re-energize me, mm-hmm. but not the entertainment, not the leaving the house, because that just kind of ramps me up even more. But mm-hmm. if I don't put that on my calendar, I just slip right into a continual long pattern of no rest at all. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's talk, let's back up a little bit and talk about that because, um, you know, I, I'd be interested to know, so Jeremy, maybe you can speak to this um, with your me, we, us. What, for example, you kind of alluded to a couple things, but what was going off the rails before you decided to prioritize this? Like, what was your time just being cannibalized? Or were you just kind of not, you weren't really mindful of what you should be doing when? Like, was it kind of like a slow creep? Or was it just like, all, you know, all hands on deck, open season on my time and activities? Self-care wasn't a concept, even being in the counseling field, that I wasn't really cognizant of. My family of origin didn't do that. I mean, we were just country folks and blue collar and, you know, you just, you, you, you did, you, you played and that kind of thing, but there wasn't a intentionality to um, self-care as a concept, right? Yeah. And so what probably was ha- sounded too selfish. Yeah. They're like, yeah, I'm not going right. to talk about and myself and caring. Exactly. For yeah. And we sometimes kind of spiritualize away mm-hmm. self-care and rest, but Rest is a spiritual decision, mm-hmm. and it is a spiritual discipline. Mm-hmm. And um, Sabbath, right? Mm-hmm. Sabbath is ancient mm-hmm. uh, for the, the Israelites, but even before that, it was God mm-hmm. who did it. He rested mm-hmm. on the seventh day. Mm-hmm. So we actually need to integrate rest as truly part of God's image. So what? back to your question, though, what was going off the rails is eventually, for me, and everybody's different, how they're going to recognize and, and wake up to needing to do appropriate rest and self-care if they're not doing it. For me, my body started giving me symptoms, mm. uh, body anxiety, mm-hmm. um, you know, things that I had not experienced where there was a sense of, I'm jittery. Uh, where's this coming from? Where's this kind of anxious depression feeling coming from neurochemically? And we could get into things like serotonin depletion mm-hmm. and adrenal fatigue. Mm-hmm. Those are concepts that folks can read about. Your body will give you signals and will do you a favor. Mm-hmm. Your body will do you a mm-hmm. favor and speak to you. Yeah. If you can see it as that, and then and, and I, I had to embrace that and got some counseling care around that. And helps me be a better counselor today. But I started having body anxiety types of, you know, borderline panic type Mm -hmm. things that were coming out of the blue that I needed to attend to and am better for having done it. Yeah. 
Um, Diane and Jackson, what are some of the warning signs that you see when you realize you're way depleted on rest? You know, in our family of origin, if you sat, that meant you were lazy. So it was a constant motion. Mm -hmm. You find something else to clean again. Mm -hmm. And so that concept of rest was you finally drop into bed and hope that you can sleep all the way through and then get up in the morning and start all over again. Mm -hmm. So you didn't want to be called lazy or have it be called out on you. So it was constant movement. Mm -hmm. So you take that into a school situation. I was carrying 16 credits. I was working part-time. I was teaching a Bible study. Uh, I was mentoring girls. And so it was this constant. And much like you were saying, Jeremy, I started panic attacks. Mm -hmm. And I actually loved them because I was also struggling with my eating disorder. So that meant I burnt more calories. So it's like, oh, good. I just had a panic attack. Let's see. That's probably about, oh, I don't know, 50, maybe 75 calories. So that just made me keep going even more and not realizing there is such a thing as self-care. And when do you stop? And then when I got bronchitis and walking pneumonia Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, ta-da, I had to sit down. And then you feel guilty because you don't realize your body is saying you are done and it's okay to rest. And I think you have to give yourself permission to know. It's a skill. Mm -hmm. Actually, I had to take the fun out of the the concept by saying that relaxing is a skill. I mean, Google that and you're going to find a lot of articles, Mm -hmm. even secular articles, just about body relaxation, progressive muscle relaxation. Relaxing is not only a mindset, mm-hmm. a spiritual discipline, but there are some some true skills to mm-hmm. to yeah. doing it well for yourself. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I also think that it's very easy to realize, okay, I, I do need rest up, upstairs, like in your mind, but then to actually get your body mm-hmm. to agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, more importantly, your schedule, like you guys were said, you know, um, with the calendar and mm-hmm. figuring out where can I actually schedule that rest. Because that's what I found going through major life transitions, whether it be entering college or leaving college, mm-hmm. getting married, starting your first job, and like Lisa mentioned, the, the burnout generation. Mm-hmm. That's super common, man. I have so many friends that just started a job, and all of a sudden they, they want to quit working. They want to find a different job. They don't like what they're doing. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that's super common across all generations, but it's, I'm certainly seeing it in a lot yeah. of my friendships. And it's because, like you mentioned, Jeremy, it's that skill that you have to learn. And then if you don't have people around you mm-hmm. that are encouraging you, practicing it with you. Or calling you out exactly, on it. Exactly. Yeah. And that, that's where I was headed, Diane, the the calling out mm-hmm. part. Because I found that I'm that in my life, um, I, I struggle in identifying when I'm restless mm-hmm. um, or when I need rest. I need other people to point that out for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. It needs to be in a rhythm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, God gave us a calendar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he said, to show that you are insufficient and I'm sufficient by stopping mm-hmm. on the seventh day. Mm-hmm. And um, I encourage a body, mind, and spirit lens to self-care and rest. And even now with um, with clients, we'll... If this is something that needs to happen and needs to be awakened in their lives, we'll build a self-care menu with a column for everything that affects you at a body level. And it's different for every person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What speaks to you, what ministers to you, helps you physically. You know, you mentioned jogging. Mm-hmm. For some people, it's going to be any number of things. But what where at a body level, at a mind level, what are things that psychologically help your mind stop working? And, and then spirit, where's your spiritual care? Where are your relationships? And then pick something off of your self-care menu every 
so often and have bigger things like vacations, right? Those are a type of self-care. And then smaller things that you can do 10 minutes in your office between meetings. Mm-hmm. And so I, I will call, I will say, here's a self-care menu just like that you've built and just like a buffet at a restaurant, right? You don't pick the same thing every time, but go pick where where is your need, where is your hunger, if you will, off of this menu and take a sip, a drink, a gulp, and every so often a swim mm-hmm. out of this because self-care, it's like hydration. You're going to, mm-hmm. you need little sips at times. You need full-on drinks and gulps and occasionally, at least a couple times a year, some, some retreats or vacations. And, and that's a structure if you will build that menu for yourself and commit to that rhythm mm-hmm. in your relationships with the spouse or with um, just your community group to yeah. be accountable to that. Well, it's so hard when you are constantly looking at other people and how they're doing their rhythms and living their life. And I think that's what's so tricky for millennials and and Gen Zers in particular, because there's always that person, like to Diane's point of for her, it was the family comparison of this is what it looks like to be productive, to be a contributing member of this Mm -hmm. family, whatever. And if not, you're substandard or whatever. Mm -hmm. But right now, it seems to be this idea of you know, okay, you can have your normal job, but you better be doing some kind of like super passionate Mm -hmm. life giving gig Mm -hmm. on the side. Because I mean, I can't even tell you how many people I know, like whether it's a a niece or a nephew or friends who are in their 20s, who are like starting photography businesses or doing but they don't realize that even though they enjoy it, that's also a lot of work. And that's taking time. I mean, this is in addition to full time jobs, or they're doing some other like graphic design on the side, or they're doing something chasing something else, building something, you know, getting into cryptocurrencies, or God Mm -hmm. forbid, NFTs, which I'm just like, that's going to just kill us. Let me tell you that right now. (laughs) We'll do a roundtable on that in the future. Anyway, that whole idea of like, wow, how do you prioritize? Like, what does that look like? And, um, you know, Jackson, maybe you could speak to this because you're a youngster um, here on the panel. (laughs) You mentioned sleep. I mean, I think that's one of the first things to go. I mean, I remember being out of college, working full time and joining up with friends after work, Mm -hmm. going up to Denver for the entire evening, Mm -hmm. getting home at 2 a.m. and getting up and going to work the next morning. That clearly does not happen today. I'm way too old for that. (laughs) But the fact that that I mean, it's not just like every 20 something should be doing that. So how do you find within your groups of friends, people who are willing to be normal? I mean, is (laughs) it even possible? Yeah, well, choose your friends wisely. I would (laughs) say. (laughs) Or hang out with like old people. That's that's my solution. But honestly, to that point, I'm glad you brought that up. I found that that surrounding myself with maybe just one or two older, older men for me, and then older women for, you know, uh, friends that are girls is really helpful because you can just learn so much about how they live their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think that, uh, like Jeremy mentioned, um, the sleep component, it's different for everybody, right? You, you learn your sleep schedule um, and the way that it gets affected or thrown off. One, one funny thing I did, and this definitely isn't for everybody, um, but every now and then, probably once a month, I'll choose a Saturday where I just go to bed at five. And then I get 10 hours of sleep. And it just kind of restores that weekend sleep for me. Um, I might miss out on a friend thing. 5 p.m.? 5 p.m., yeah. Oh, my Sorry, Lord. yeah. Okay. Not 5 I just had <laughs> to process that. Yeah. Okay, yeah. go ahead. And yep. it's very uncommon, very different, <laughs> but but I just do it. And uh-huh. it, it, I'm able to fall asleep. My body's just kind of adjusted to it over wow. time. 
and I watch, I wake up Sunday morning and I'm so rested, hmm. so, so rested. Mm-hmm. And then I just can kind of go and go throughout my week. Um, I also think to your point about the the passions and mm-hmm. turning those into jobs, I, w- I would encourage people not to let their passions become a job, right? Mm-hmm. Let that continue to be a thing that you enjoy rather than something that you feel like you have to hmm. um, compete with others or compare with others. Um, let it be just for yourself. Or it's, make money off of it. Yeah, yeah. You don't always have to make money off of the thing that God mm-hmm. gifted you with. Mm-hmm. Um I, I do see that a, a lot with some of my friends who, who just get burnt out because they think that they have to, you know, that they've been given this gift and they have to turn it into the only thing that they're known by, the only thing that they, they do with their time. Yeah. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the difference between resting in a truly restorative way and just vegging out because those are yep. two different things. Mm-hmm. Yep. Those are, we know that a lot of people equate vegging out with resting, but then they wonder why they're so exhausted all the time. And for me, what it is, you know, I would love to hear what where you guys get tripped up on this. For me, it is either scrolling through social media or playing games on my phone. Those are probably two of the big things. Now, playing a few games on my phone can be a nice little brain break, but all of a sudden, <laughs> I'm like playing games on my phone, and then I notice I'm like, I just need to play one more game to get these 10 gems that are going to get me to the next level. And then I'm like, okay, this is ridiculous. So all of a sudden, I'm totally caught up in it and this weirdness of like, whatever. For some people, maybe it's TV or whatever. What is it for you guys that tends to be a time trap? The phrase I like is, you want to check out in Mm -hmm. order to check in. Mm -hmm. You don't want to veg out or check out just to be lost. And then you come back to quote reality at a certain point after the binge of whatever Mm -hmm. it is into, you know, you're, you're just as far behind on your rest and your task because you weren't checking out in order to nurture yourself necessarily really intentionally Mm -hmm. off of a menu that's good for you. You've, you kind of, in a sense, sort of addictively escaped. Mm -hmm. And I love, for me, I love the art form of marching music, right? Of, of brass Mm -hmm. music. And I will, I will take a break and listen to something gives me that dopamine high in my brain. (laughs) That's Uh, so funny. I I love to watch. There's this thing, your listeners, there'll be a few fans out there. They're going to write, right? And I love your drum corps international. I loved to watch the artistry and the athleticism and, and that. So that will be a way that I check out in order to kind of be more energized when I check back in. Now, can I do that reactively? Can I lose myself, kind of like your game piece, into that? Or and people can do it with football or they can do it with their mm-hmm. sport. You have to ask the Holy Spirit, am I checking out like with a vice? Mm-hmm. Or am I using this enjoyment in order to truly be a better human being and check back in? Mm-hmm. And you have to discern that mm-hmm. in a way. And some there are some people in your life you could invite into that. Mm-hmm. People can do it with food or good meals or in good ways or bad ways. And ha- being accountable if you're vulnerable in a certain area or you've had an addiction in some area I think is pretty important, yeah. actually. Okay. Diane, you clearly said you had to unlearn this, the idea of yeah. just busy being busy, but mm-hmm. did you go the opposite extreme and check out, or what does it look like for you to have balance? Um, I think I'm still learning that. Okay. I really enjoy like putting a puzzle together, mm-hmm. and I find that that's a relaxing kind of a brain thing, um, but it's different than playing a game on on my phone, because I feel like my eyes are tired, and my, my brain is tired, and my thumbs are tired, where when you're doing a puzzle, there's this picture that I'm creating of something really beautiful. And I usually pick 
carefully the pictures that I want to put together that have pretty colors in it. And I find that, oh, I just kind of, oh, when, when I'm done with my 15 or 20 minutes of working on a puzzle, I can walk away. But I feel that same way with baking, too. It's like it's that relaxing the mixer, the you know, putting my hands in the dough. And I'm doing it for somebody else as well. When I bake, I love to give away. And there's a, like there's a reward in that. But it's also a relaxing mm-hmm. time for me to bake and then that smell in the house of bread and then give it away. But it takes time because both of those are activities and I have to stop and go, oh, is this because I can't sit still? Mm -hmm. Or is this because I'm enjoying the activity? Mm -hmm. Because if I sit still, oh no, I'm not productive. Okay. So it's hard to find that balance of which which is this, Diane? Is this just substituting one thing for another? Yeah. I'm not scrubbing the floor. I'm putting a puzzle together. Okay. Mm-hmm. So each of you, as we finish here, I would love to hear what a restful day for you is like. And it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be a weekend day. It could just be like, what does your sleep look like? What are you going to do to recharge? What are you doing to connect with other people? Are you actually going to be able to work in there somewhere? What would it actually look like for you to have a day where you're like, okay, gold star? I could, I can give myself a gold star for that in the rest department. If I can get up when I want. Okay. With absolutely no schedule for the day. Okay. And I'm just going to decide on the moment. I think I'll go out to breakfast. I think I'll go get a cup of coffee somewhere. And that to me is like, I can go shopping and not buy anything Mm -hmm. but and not know anybody. Go by myself. Um, Drive around in my car. But it's me without a schedule Mm -hmm. is the best kind of Mm -hmm. relaxation, especially if I'm home, you know? And you have to schedule an unscheduled day. Yes. (laughs) And... I agree with that. That I would say ditto to that. And so I'll add a, a different one is having, for me, if I can't do that, which many days you can't, no. it is actually following what I chose to put in my work day, blocking the day, so that I was prepared. I prepared my staff and those that I'm accountable to that I won't be uh, available until X time. Mm-hmm. And I... And I actually adhere to that. Mm-hmm. And I have, maybe it's a morning cup of coffee, maybe it's a walk or a jog or some scripture reading. And I live up to what mm-hmm. I put in my schedule that was was supposed to be a sane schedule that day. Mm-hmm. And if I adhere to that and I still take a lunch break and I do a little sip off my self-care menu, maybe listen to some worship music while I'm eating my lunch and I leave work at 5, mm-hmm. That is a relaxed yet productive workday if I can stay in the bounds of what I scheduled. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah, and I'd say a blend of Diane and Jeremy's days, mm-hmm. right? If I'm a morning person, and so having that morning geared towards that productivity, right? Mm-hmm. I would love to wake up before everybody else mm-hmm. rather than waking up just when I want to mm-hmm. um, and, and have that time that, that does feel the, the right kind of selfish to get my tasks done, to get my to-do list done. And then whenever that's complete, be it at lunchtime, be it a little bit after, before, then I can mentally kind of recognize, oh, I have this time for leisure things or planning things with friends um, that I can fill out the rest of the day. That would be pretty ideal for yeah, me. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I think for me it would have to start the night before because I would like to get to bed early so that I could get up earlier because mm-hmm. I tend to be I feel more refreshed in the morning if I can make it happen, but too often I stay up too late and then it starts mm-hmm. out the bad cycle of just whatever. And um, yeah, I think for me too, the mix of like, oh, do I have a chunk of time where I can just do something fun or call a friend or go hang out with someone or whatever? But then 
I cannot, I can rarely get to the end of a day not having done something that I felt was productive and still feel like good about that. You know, like, oh, unless I'm like straight up on vacation and I've allowed, <laughs> you know, and I, I know in my head it's, it's clear that I don't have to worry about anything. But yeah, it's a weird spot to be. So, well, you guys, thank you so much for mm-hmm. weighing in on this. This was a good conversation and a lot of fun. I even learned a few things, I think. So those of you listening, uh, do find us uh, on social. Hit us up. Tell us, how do you rest well? What does this look like? Maybe we can all help one another in this. Um, and move forward kind of especially now in the new year so great thoughts guys thank you thank you when you lie down you will not be afraid when you lie down your sleep will be sweet when you lie down you will not be afraid When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. Come to me, all who are tired and lonely. Come to me. All right, folks. Well, we're here for this week's culture segment, and this is actually part one of a two-parter. And so you got to tune in next week uh, to see where we're going to go with this. But we have our friend Mike Bechtel back here at The Boundless Show. And I was reminded, which I knew this, but I'd forgotten it, that he is actually a Boundless Show listener and he is not, I mean, he might be in his 30s. He's not in his 20s, I know. <laughs> but he's a hes a fan of all things Boundless. And Mike, welcome. Thank you very much. Privilege to be here. Super great to have you here. And he was telling me that his wife was like, are you going to be on Boundless when you get to focus on the family? And he's like, yeah. So we're always grateful when, when you can join us. And uh, you guys know we've talked to him several times on the show uh, in the past about themes from other books that he has, including uh, Pete. People, uh, difficult people. Uh, met, you know, uh, we had we actually had a great time. That was the first time I think I had I think you so. um, chatting with us about that. So, um, as well as uh, the topic of evangelism, which was really fun. The great thing about Mike is he's always super practical in the way he applies stuff, and he uses a lot of his own um, fears and foibles to illustrate. So that's really encouraging uh, to the rest of us. So his latest book is titled "The People Pleasers Guide." to loving others without losing yourself. And uh, and this is another great topic, which is why we're going to give it two weeks, because we're going to deal with this week, we're going to talk through some fears that keep people pleasers kind of, you know, all all tied up, like why we get caught in these ruts of, uh, you know, behaving in ways that we say we're not going to behave in and we're not going to, you know, show up in a relationship this way. And then we do. And then next week, we're going to open it up and, and get some great insights from Mike as to how to do things differently. And so... Um, well, I want to go ahead and, and dive right in, Mike, because like I said, you are very good about sharing some of your own story in this. Talk to us about 
What's your deal when you think of yourself as a people pleaser? Because there's probably like a people pleaser profile in general or kind of what people think of when they think, oh, yeah, they're a people pleaser. Um, what would you say? How has it impacted you most in your life? And then why? when did you have kind of the wake-up call around it? I think I've learned that people pleasers don't always know that they are. Mm -hmm. They just know that they don't necessarily feel good about themselves. Mm -hmm. And so they have to get other people to like them. Mm -hmm. And so if you like me, then I feel good about me. And so I will do whatever I can to make you like me. And so I will position myself. I will craft an image that I do in front of you. I won't say no. I'll volunteer to help you with anything. I'll make compliments about you. I'll do anything that I can to get you to like me or to get your feedback in mm -hmm. a positive way because that's where my self-esteem comes from. So I don't have it internally. And I think at a certain point, you just get tired mm -hmm. because it's a lot of work holding up an image. It's like you're putting up a facade that other people have to see and I can't let down at all because you might be disappointed. You might not like me. So I think when you start recognizing, for me, it was just being exhausted yeah. of how I had to relate to other people that I thought there's something wrong here. And I started needing to do something about it. Yeah, that's so interesting because I absolutely would self-diagnose as a people pleaser, which a lot of people find funny because people often think, oh, Lisa, you know, you're you're pretty direct. You have opinions, you whatever. And I'm like, yeah, if someone asks me for my opinion, I'm going to give it right away. And I have an opinion on most things or I'm going to be like, this is right. This is wrong. This is whatever. But I also really want people to like me. And more than that, I'm astonished when they don't. <laughs> <laughs> because, Mike, I am a likable person. Okay, let's just be honest. So the fact that people wouldn't like me or just choose to not like have me be their favorite person, then I get offended. And then it's a whole performance thing. And it's a weird, weird trap because I've noticed it in myself as well. And it's a little bit of a hamster wheel yeah. of going back and forth on that. Well, so I, th I even discovered that when I when I started figuring out that it was a problem, mm -hmm. I thought I need to get some help. So I looked for every book I could find on people-pleasing. Mm -hmm. And the problem was that every one of them said, people-pleasing is bad. You need to forget about others and take care of you. Oh, yeah. And that mm -hmm. felt pretty selfish. And I thought, but I like other people. And I don't want to focus just on me. I'm nice. Yeah. I, want to con I want to be nice. I care about other people. But I realized I was doing it mostly so I would feel good about myself not because I really deeply cared about them. And all the books said, in my mind, it said, be selfish. Yeah. And I thought, that doesn't feel right. And so when I realized people-pleasing is a biblical concept, caring for other people, mm -hmm. uh, even Philippians, you know, look out for the needs of others more as well as your own. It doesn't say instead of your own. It mm -hmm. says in, as well as your own needs. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I began the journey and thought, I need to write something about this because um, it took me to a different place yeah. where I could actually get my security internally where it needs to be. That frees me up to be able to to care about other people. Yeah. And it's almost like the way you're describing it, you know, some people will trend towards, oh, okay, well, let's just do more of a self-care kind of element of it of like, okay, I need to, I need to be okay with me. I need to whatever. But some people kind of overcompensate by being the 
hey, this is what you get, just take it. And they end up being kind of jerks about yeah. it. <laughs> so then it's like, you know, what you see is what you get. And if you don't like it, and then they're just completely resistant to any kind of growth, any kind of feedback, any kind of, so I can easily see where, where it can become problematic. Well, that's what I ran into in those books. I felt like most of them, yeah. they had, that had been the solution for them. So they wrote a book about it so everybody else would have that solution. Mm-hmm. But it just, <laughs> It just doesn't work. Yeah, for sure. Well, you obviously address in the book uh, the fact that so much people-pleasing is sourced out of certain fears. And one that we probably would all agree is is a, a big one is the fear of rejection. And so, you know, I mean, here we are in a culture where people are doing relationships digitally on many levels. We have people that have their own brands. They're platforming themselves. They're trying to put um, an image forward that may or may not be close to reality of who they actually are. And so this this fear of rejection, if you can craft an image that you are pretty confident will not be rejected because it's something that you have propped up and kind of cultivated, well, then all of a sudden reality goes out the window. And so um, let's talk a little bit about rejection and why, first of all, why is that such a weirdly deep-seated fear that most of us have and how do we, how does it manifest? I think all of us have a deep-seated need to be cared for and to have value. And if you reject me, you may be rejecting what I say or what I do, and normally it's probably your perception. It's your opinion more than something else, but I take it personally. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like you're rejecting what I said. I don't feel like you're rejecting what I did. You're rejecting me. And if you reject me or I perceive it that way, then I feel like I don't have any value. Mm-hmm. And so I've got to change the way I come across to get value because I don't want to be rejected. And I don't think anybody does. But in, especially in these terms, to get rejected to that point. Yeah. And I think that's so good because you actually say um, in the book, in, in fact, you, you say here, for healthy people, rejection is a disappointment they learn to handle. For a people pleaser, it can become a crippling commentary on their personal value. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of what you're saying where it pivots of like, we can, all of us are going to face something where someone disagrees with us or they're like, nope, I don't want to do that. I don't want to hang out with you. I don't want to, but it's not it's usually something to do with a choice that they're making or an opinion that they have. It's not a necessary commentary on you, but it's so easy to internalize I that. take it that way. Yeah. Because I know how I feel about me on the inside, and if it's not good, then I assume you must be seeing that and feeling the same thing. Yeah. So I project that on you. And so now I'm believing something that may not be true. Okay. So what does it look like for a person who knows that they're going to, or I mean, they don't necessarily know it, but they're going to people please because they fear rejection. What are some of the things that you're going to see them doing? There's several that are kind of obvious. One of them is I I always say yes. Hmm. If you ask me to do anything, I don't even think about it. Of course I'll do that. Mm -hmm. Because if I don't, you might not feel good about me or you might reject me. I will never say no. So it's like kind of a two part, um, two parts of the same thing. Mm-hmm. I will find myself getting overwhelmed because I'm saying yes to everything. And so suddenly it's become my exhaustion point. I think usually I start feeling exhausted because it's so much work to keep this up. But those are probably two of the biggest ones is I will say yes to everything and I will never say no to anything. Yeah. And so now I'm at the mercy of whatever you want me to do. In fact, I will volunteer to do things, whether you've asked me or not. I'll find a way to do that. 
Yeah. And so now I'm setting myself up that way. Okay. This is like the profile of every Enneagram 2 um, <laughs> who is absolutely playing, you know, that whole idea of like, of course, I'm going to anticipate your needs. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to show up. I'm going to be the savior. I'm going to be, but you better also be that for me too, because this is a, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And then the resentment sets in when their expectation of how you should be behaving toward them uh, doesn't quite pan out. Um, okay. The next one is conflict. And this is absolutely where I lie in my people pleasing, uh, not wanting conflict and not being willing to initiate conflict. Uh, if there is <laughs> something at play where maybe a point, you know, and this is, it's so crazy because it's like, um, well, and you even say this in the book, you talk about how conflict is a necessary part of life. And yet we treat it like, the minute you have conflict, it means you're not in a real relationship or a healthy relationship, uh, something along those lines. And so um, let's talk about a, a little bit in terms of uh, conflict. People want close relationships and they mistake good friendships as being necessarily conflict free. But why would you, I mean, and as a result, we just have a bunch of surfacy relationships. So mm -hmm. where, I mean, no one is going to say, oh, I just want to be super shallow and don't want to ever have conflict with someone and just let it be like that. But clearly we are wading frog in the kettle into this. So where do you see this kind of come to play? Well, I think a lot of it is just that we don't, we're uncomfortable around anger. Mm -hmm. We're uncomfortable when we see conflict. And for someone that's a people pleaser, a lot of times it's like, I will just back away. I'm not going to engage because I'll change the subject. Mm -hmm. I'll talk about something different. I'll use humor mm -hmm. to diffuse a situation because mm -hmm. it's just so uncomfortable. And I remember growing up, my dad was really nice. And I don't remember him ever being angry. I think he was, but he held it in. So I learned to do that. And I learned to avoid conflict, partially because I read a Christian book by a well-known Christian author when I was a teenager who said, all anger is always wrong. And so you should never have anger. It's sin in every case. And I remember thinking, okay, then I need to not be angry. So I was, but I'd stuff it. And then I would make you not think I was angry. Because if I'm angry, you might not like me because I watched other people. Mm -hmm. And I saw angry people. And I thought, people don't like that. They're, they're kind of out of control. And I don't want to be that way. So I don't want conflict. I don't want anger. And so I do everything I could to avoid it. But then you get married or you get into a relationship, it's like at some point there will be conflict and it's like, okay, this thing just fell apart. No, it probably is a turning point. It could be the healthiest thing that happened if we learn how to handle it. We almost can lean into it. it conflict can be the strongest thing if we are honest about it. We're not using it just to explode on each other, but to be able to have some real issues and real dialogue. It's like that opens the door to it. But it's how we how we uh, how we handle that emotion. Yeah. So it seems like I mean, in an ideal world, you're going to be dealing with healthy people who can talk things out, who can acknowledge like their own, you know, fault in a situation, and then you can and you work it out and stuff. But I've been. What about when it backfires on you? Because I've been in situations, Mike, where you know I tried to broach a topic or tried to address something or say this hurt you know, me, whatever, in this behavior. 
And then all of a sudden I gave the, or I became the person that was like, oh yeah, Lisa, she's just going to come after you and like say something like whatever. And, and then I felt, you know, then I was like, well, that clearly didn't work. So it was kind of like, I don't know. I felt like it was something where I was trying to be very honest about something and all of a sudden I was painted as a jerk. So do we just need to recognize who's healthy and who's not in how to go after that? Kind of, because I think there are going to be people. We can't please everyone. Mm -hmm. There are going to be people that if I am truthful, Mm -hmm. they are not going to like it and they might respond in that way. And I can't fix that. I can't force them to feel differently. But at the same time, Scripture says to speak the truth in love. Mm -hmm. And I think that's not just a cliche. I have to think, so what does that look like? If I'm going to say that to someone, if I'm bringing up my opinion, one of the best ways I think that we can do it in a practical sense is just to slow down. Mm -hmm. And instead of responding when we feel like, okay, I have this, I'm ready to say it, even to pause for five seconds and think, is this really going to be helpful? Is this what I want to say? Is it true? Is it accurate? And is this the best time to say it? Is this the best way to say it for that person? Because that's where it's like consider other people's needs above your own. It's like, so what's the best way to say this? Mm -hmm. I won't do that if I just say it. Mm -hmm. And it's something I found that most people can do. It's almost like when I'm feeling it, make that the trigger that says, take a break, Mm -hmm. just slow down a little bit and decide, do I really want to say it or what words do I want to use? Yeah. Well, and I think it's so helpful too, to that point to realize, and this is where, again, this is hard to do, but, um, we, we can't control other people's responses. You know, we can only do what we can do, but I want to go into a situation having control of both sides of the issue and be like, okay, I'm going to say this in a way that is going to get me the response that I want rather than trusting God with the response and, you know, seeing where it goes from there. Well, a lot of times we, we uh, use logic as our primary tool Mm -hmm. when there's conflict. Mm -hmm. And if there's emotion at the same time as logic, they're not going to work well together. Usually logic makes things worse because there's emotion. That's where empathy comes in. But it's like I need to deal with the emotional side of it first. And it's like logic turns you into someone. Now you've gotten onto social media where you have the bad side, where I'm using it as a platform to express what I'm feeling and thinking. But on an issue around strong emotion, I've never had my mind changed by somebody who came on really strong with logic mm-hmm. when we were in that. The conflict is where we work on the relationship mm-hmm. and say, okay, this is not, the, it's the issue that's the problem, not the other person. If yeah. I can separate those. Yeah, good. Um, okay, so a couple here that I want you to take in tandem because I think that you reference social media. This comes into play so much here, both the fear of invisibility and the fear of inadequacy. And you know, we're we're in a culture where because of digital platforms and outliers, it's like everyone can be so enamored with people that they have never met, people that are not in their lives, people that they think are so amazing because all they've seen is a, a social media profile or LinkedIn, (laughs) all of a sudden people are looking so good and looking so interesting. And this friend that I have down the street, well, they're not, they're just like me, you know. So um, talk about uh, invisibility. And then also, like you said, this, this idea of inadequacy, how either we're not seen or when we are seen, it's just we're kind of meh, you know, in that sense. And man, I mean, I feel like 
this is a generational thing because I feel like a couple, you know, my parents and grandparents, they were never like looking around so worried about were they as awesome as the next person, but that's exactly where people live today. Yeah. In fact, the invisibility, one of the things that people pleasers do is we try and position ourselves and we make it about you and we minimize about us. So if you ask me a question about myself, I'll answer it quickly and turn it around and ask a question about you because I want you to feel like I'm interested in you and I'm going that direction. Well, what that does is make me more invisible. I'm actually causing that invisibility. I feel like I'm in Harry Potter with the invisibility cloak, Mm -hmm. which is sometimes a nice place to be. Mm -hmm. But then if somebody doesn't reach out to me and you don't come after me and uh, affirm me, I'm thinking, well, there must be something wrong with me because they don't reach out. Mm-hmm. Well, it's because I made myself invisible. Mm-hmm. So it's almost self-directed. It's a matter of recognizing what I'm doing. How do I pull myself back into a real relationship with another person yeah. is where I go with that. The inadequacy part of it is I, the need to have people affirm us. Mm-hmm. And we do that, you know, whenever we have a family portrait, we always, we smile. Mm-hmm. Why do you smile when you don't feel like it? Mm-hmm. Well, because you want a good picture on the Christmas card. Mm-hmm. Well, you had 200 pictures that were not smiling, and then you got the <laughs> one where you do. So which one is more representative of what's real? Or when you see a picture of yourself in a crowd, in a group of people, which who do you look at first? You always look at you mm-hmm. to see, you know, am I as good as everyone? If it's a bad picture of me, I assume it's a bad picture. Mm-hmm. If I look okay, it's a good picture. Mm-hmm. But just that need to... I want to be perfect for everybody else. Mm-hmm. And if I'm a, the wrong kind of people pleaser, the tipping point is, am I doing it for your response so I feel better? Is it about me? Or am I doing it because I really care about you? Yeah. Well, and of course, we've dug ourselves into holes with this because now we have um, Instagram filters. We have different ways of completely altering, whether it's ourselves or our, you know, again, or we could go and we could build a platform around something, or like I said, the whole branding of things, and we don't have to present a realistic picture if we don't want to. Um, it's funny, too, what you say about the invisibility, because I have a friend who admitted to me once, she said, yeah, I'm really good at asking other people questions, and I realize that that is because I do not want to disclose things about myself. So she was a master at turning the question around and getting info out of other people, and it allowed her to kind of be, uh, you know, a little bit off the radar Mm -hmm. as far as she didn't have to be vulnerable. She didn't have to be, and then true to form, the average person is not curious about other people, so they wanted to talk about themselves, and so she was able to play that role and play that game for quite a while. Well, I think we've learned how to Photoshop ourselves so that we look a certain way with other people. Because I remember doing a seminar years ago at one of the Hollywood studios, and at lunchtime, I was sitting with some of the participants, and I asked this one guy, I said, so what do you do? He says, well, I work on the web. I said, you're an IT guy? He said, no, we're filming Spider-Man, and I am in charge of the web when it comes out of his hand. (laughs) And he says, I said, well, how do you do that? He said, well, we go up on the roof with a ball of yarn, and we throw it when it's windy. And let the wind catch it, and we film that, and then we digitize it so it looks like the web coming out. It looks realistic. Mm-hmm. And he said, everything I do is fake. Hmm. He said, that's my job is to make things look the way they're not. Mm-hmm. And it always stuck with me. I thought it's probably the same kind of a thing. We Photoshop our lives to appear a certain way, and it's like if we could learn ways to be more genuine, yeah. more real, it certainly would help a lot of that. Yeah. 
So, Mike, the final fear is irrelevance. And let's just talk. I mean, this is a stymieing one because um, this is like, I mean, you're talking here on this show mostly to people who claim Jesus Christ and who would say, oh, my identity's in Christ. You know, I know that I have worth, I have value. But it's one thing to say what you believe, and it's another thing to live that out. And the great fear of irrelevance, like, am I, do I have purpose? Do I have calling? Am I living out a passion? Is God able to use me? Do I have giftings that matter? Give an encouragement to the young adult who's who's listening today, who really is grappling with this and wondering, you know, on the average day of the week, does any of it matter? I think we've been told properly so, that what God says about us is really what matters. We shouldn't worry about what other people say. Find your self-esteem. God loves us. He has created us the way he did with giftings and everything else. So just look to him. But he also said it's not good for man to be alone. And we use that in the context of relationships. But I think it's just a principle as true as God created us for community. And when I have community that's where he works in our lives the most. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I, our tendency is to say, well, I have a problem with people pleasing. I'll go to a self-help section and buy a book. And then we read the book and wonder why it doesn't work. Well, if I read a book in a group of other people and go through things, now it's the community that's making the value mm-hmm. there. So I think he designed us, you know, so the two primary um, things we're supposed to do is love God, love other people. Mm-hmm. And... We forget the people part. He designed us to need community, to need that affirmation from each other. So both of them have to be there. Yes, our value comes from God, but he gave us those relationships so that we can, we need the affirmation from each other. Mm-hmm. That's good. Well, folks, obviously, you know, we've been walking through the fears that are making us the consummate people pleasers. And most of us can say like, yeah, that's me. And we maybe haven't parsed it out to exactly what is playing into that. Um, But next week, we're going to have Mike back to talk through some strategies, some encouragement for, okay, what do we do with this? How do we turn the tables? How do we live out of our true selves and love other people and love God confidently? Um, You'll hear that word next week as well. Uh, Again, the book is The People Pleaser's Guide to Loving Others Without Losing Yourself. We've been talking to to Dr. Mike Bechtel. So Mike, you're going to join us next week? Looking forward to it. Awesome. Sounds good. Folks, uh, this book is available to you for a gift of any amount. Uh, if you go to boundless.org, you can search for 731. That's this week's episode. If you click on the book cover there, you give a gift, whatever you can afford to Boundless. We're going to send Mike's book as a thank you to you for that. So we will make it available right here from the Boundless show. And so that's a great opportunity for you. to. I don't know if I'd recommend like finding all your people pleasing friends and saying, you're a mess. Here, read this book. But you know what? Hello, group study, maybe group book club, whatever. I think it'd be a fun thing to introduce uh, to your friend circles here in the new year. So uh, make sure you get the book. Again, The People Pleaser's Guide to Loving Others Without Losing Yourself. Hear my cry, oh God. Listen to my prayers. From the ends of the earth I call to you. Hear my cry, oh God, listen to my prayer, from the ends of the earth I call to you.
Folks, we are opening up our inbox where we answer one of your questions, and we love it when we can bring in one of our licensed professional counselors here at Focus on the Family and Boundless, and today we have Glenn Lutchens. Hey, Glenn. Hi, Lisa. Great to have you. Okay, this is a really, this is a, we were just talking beforehand about how this is actually becoming a more common question, um, but whatever way you look at it, it is a sticky situation because a lot of opinions, a lot of uh, ways to weigh in on this one. So I will go ahead and read it for you and let you take a stab at it. Okay. Our listener says, my boyfriend and I are about to be engaged. Last night, we talked about what our finances might look like once we get married. Several years ago, he went through a terrible divorce and lost a lot. Because of that, he wants to keep our money separate as we move toward marriage. He wants separate accounts, separate bills, separate responsibilities, and even mentioned the possibility of a prenuptial agreement. While I want to demonstrate grace and understanding, I can't help but feel the sting of these requests. I don't make as much as him and fear not being able to pull my own weight. I feel safe enough to bring this subject up again, but I'm not sure how. Is keeping our money separate appropriate according to biblical standards? How can I communicate my questions with grace without sounding like I'm not willing to follow his lead? Hmm. Well, I hear a lot of maturity in this woman's question. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's an awareness and a courage just to be able to to bring up the issue. And uh, I think there is a legitimate concern that she has as far as a check in her spirit, mm-hmm. presuming, let's say, that this is a, a relationship where there's biblical grounds for, for him to remarry. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's not a lot of pain that a person has gone through and the importance of addressing those those areas of pain beyond just simply the financial mm-hmm. hurt and loss that he encountered. So I would want to understand what maybe he has done to process and work through that. Mm. You know, has there been any type of post-divorce counseling? Uh, Has there been uh, any type of um, divorce care support group that he's gone through? Because some of the the questions, some of the hurts that remain in a person can come out at different times. Now, an important element would be, you know, maybe there's a child or children. And that may be a scenario where, okay, that relationship has preceded this marriage. And so what would be financially wise to do so that uh, there can be some funds for the child? And that, that's a kind of more of a legal question, but I think it, it has its appropriateness. Um, but marriage is really a relationship where you have two whole people who bring all of who they are. I think it's the one relationship where socialism really does work, (laughs) where you have to, it's, you're bringing all of who you are with another person who's bringing all of who he or she is. And now they're, they're uniting, they're becoming one. So yeah, they still are separate and whole, but they are coming together and what one has earned becomes important. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a, a situation where 
he may still have some work to do as far as processing through and working through uh, his past divorce mm-hmm. uh, and the the hurt, the frustration, the disappointment, the uh, concerns that uh, that he may still have. So one of the ways in which she might be able to approach it is just really come forward and say, I really want to understand your heart. I want to understand the hurt, maybe the fear that you still have. Can you share that with me? Mm-hmm. It's important for her to recognize that his reaction is probably not largely about her, if at all. Mm-hmm. It's about the old wound and the pain that he's, that he's encountered. So if she can hear his heart express that pain and, and voice that in a constructive way, then I think it's possible for her to be able to give voice to her feelings and express herself. So what would you say in general about the person who's who's wondering about moving towards marriage? You know, it could be this individual or someone else. Just the whole idea of separate accounts, separate systems, you know, even prenups and, and whatnot. I mean, is there any concern, like, say, for this guy in particular, that the fears might bleed over into other areas? I mean, if, you know, again, because I would look mm-hmm. at it and say, okay, really? I mean, are you going to be that tied or are you that that much trusting in finances that you think our relationship will only succeed if it is separate? I mean, is that conversation, right. Right. who can have that conversation with him? Who can have that conversation? Maybe a counselor, <laughs> yeah. you know, to, uh, to, to talk about that. But I, I think for her to be able to give voice to it, I mean, the financial is where the question is now. But like you're saying, mm-hmm. this can be an expression of other emotional things yeah. that... It's like know, a trusting God issue, yeah. ultimately. And yeah. and forgiveness and, yeah. you know, just a number of different things. If we don't work through that first and then we enter into another relationship, it has the potential for the old stuff to to never really be fully resolved. Okay, good point. So definitely a you know, a yellow flag, if if not a red one for now, to yeah. find out where right. is he, what's he thinking, you know, with this. And, and, and being able to really hear his heart well, what, mm-hmm. what is his concern? Is he, is he willing to recognize that this is not simply about what's going on now, but what's taken place in the past? And does he recognize maybe that there are some steps that he needs to take to, to work through that so he can move forward in a constructive way? Great. Okay, cool. Well, Glenn, as always, thank you so much for for weighing in on that. Um, Folks, we have reached the end of our show. Uh, So as always, we like to encourage you to usually do a couple things. Uh, One, those of you who are newer listeners, make sure that you're actually subscribing to the show uh, on your favorite podcast platform if you want it delivered to your box every week and you can have it right there. And or if you need to stack up a few and listen to them, then that's totally fine. And then also make sure that you are sharing it with your friends, uh, because that's a great way for folks to um, hear about podcasts. I mean, you know, you've probably heard about great podcasts from other people who've been listening to them. And so The Boundless Show, we would love for you to share it with someone, whether that's just straight up in person or whether you're doing that on social or whatever. Um, Let other people know about the show and then you can all listen to it and discuss. So uh, otherwise, I will see you around next week. I'm Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of Boundless.org. Focus on the family. You know that situation your family's facing? The one you can't talk to anyone about? You're not alone. I've been there too. It was tough. 
Whether you're facing an unexpected diagnosis or a marriage in trouble or whatever you're struggling with, it's okay to ask for professional help. And there's a place you can go for psychologically sound therapy from a biblical perspective. Focus on the Family's Christian Counselors Network can confidentially point you to a verified therapist whose perspective we trust. And so can you. We've been connecting families to Christian counselors around the country for more than 40 years. No matter what your unique challenge is, you can find a way forward for your family at FocusOnTheFamily.com slash GetHelp. That's FocusOnTheFamily.com slash GetHelp.